Father, we thank you for the bit of rain that you sent our way this afternoon. We're very grateful for that. We ask you to watch over Vicki and others as they may be traveling right now and ask you to bring them here safely. Father, please grant that the time we spend together tonight will be profitable for our edification and to equip us better to serve you effectively in your church and in this fallen world. We pray this through your Son. Amen. All right. This is week number six. We're going to finish, I hope, our discussion of ecclesiology tonight. And then next week we will jump into pneumatology, the study of the work of the Holy Spirit. We will probably spend the remaining four nights on the work of the Holy Spirit. If we can do it in three, we'll save the last one for kind of open forum. Okay, so we'll see how that will go. By the way, I will provide you with additional notes next week. Okay. All right. Let's talk about church discipline. This is not a popular topic. What's the goal of church discipline? Okay, that's one of the goals, and we'll see that in a moment. I would argue that the ultimate goal of church discipline is so that Christ may present to himself a church which is holy and blameless. That's what we're really looking for. And that includes both the individuals and the whole, doesn't it? Church discipline, properly understood, is restorative and corrective rather than punitive, but the protection of the body as a whole must not be neglected. Now, Dave, I'm going to pick on you for a minute because you gave me the answer that I was looking for. We, we tend to think of the purpose of church discipline as the restoring of the sinner, and that is definitely one of the purposes. That's the purpose that gets the most attention, but I think it's really only one of the purposes. Personally, I think the number one goal of church protection is to protect the body. Okay? And I won't go through these verses right now. They're in your notes. You could look them up. Let me just read them off for the tape. Galatians 6 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 to 8, and 1 Timothy 5 20. The second purpose of church discipline is to lead the church to a sound faith. That's Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. And there the idea is that. Church discipline will lead the members to have an understanding of Scripture and of God's ways that is sound so the church can be effective in doing its work. And the work of the church, as we'll see later tonight, is both directed at God, it's directed inward at the body, and it's directed outward at the world. And a sound understanding of the faith is very important to that. Now, the third goal, and this one is very important, is to restore the sinner and to free him from sin's control. Now here I've listed 1 Corinthians 5, verses 4 through 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. The first two passages speak of the man who was involved in an incestuous sexual relationship with his stepmother, both Paul instructing the church to discipline this person and then later in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians saying, the discipline has been enough. It's done its task. The passage in 2 Timothy is the one... Let me, let me read that because I think it's worth reading here. Um, it says, and the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, and I can't quote the rest of it from there. Um, the servant of the Lord must not quarrel but be gentle to all able to teach and here's the key in humility correcting those who are in opposition if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil having been taken captive to do his will now you should be aware that there's some debate as to whether that passage is speaking about believers 
or unbelievers. But given that 2 Timothy includes a discussion, as does 1 Timothy, of the danger of false teachers in the church or false doctrine in the church, I'm personally inclined to take it as a reference to believers. Okay, when it says they've been taken captive to do the will of Satan, makes me think about what happened in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, although that wasn't the teaching thing. But I think they were taken captive to do the will of Satan. Okay, so we've got those three goals, to protect other believers, to lead the church to a sound faith, and to restore the sinner and free him from sin's control. Now, here are some important passages on church discipline. Matthew chapter 18, 15 through 20. You all know that passage, the procedure that one should go through. Um, on the topic of withdrawal or shunning, there's 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 15, and 1 Corinthians 5, verses 11 through 13. You all know what withdrawal or shunning is, right? That's when we decide as a body that a given individual is walking in sin and is unrepentant and as a body we say we are not going to share fellowship with that person either in our homes or in the church. It doesn't mean we decide we hate him or her, but it does mean that we tell this person, until you turn away from this sin, I cannot with a clear conscience enjoy fellowship with you. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and the first part of the chapter has that interesting discussion of lawsuits among believers and I've just tossed that up here some wouldn't put that in the category of church discipline but there is a call to mediate non-church type disputes between members of the body like if there are two members of the body who are in business together and they get in some kind of financial quarrel there is a call to mediate that within the church. So that might fall under the category of church discipline. And then Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, has an important passage on the discipline of false teachers. Let me read that. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households teaching th things they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. I'm going to stop there, but in those two verses, which of the goals of church discipline seems to be most in view? Take a look at those, at that. Which of these three goals? Is it to protect other believers, to lead the church to a sound faith, or to restore the sinner? Tommy, you're right. It's to protect other believers. He says their mouths must be stopped because they're subverting whole households. The first thing you got to do is make this guy shut up. And then you go on and you deal with him. But you can't just let a false teacher babble on and continue to harm others. Okay. Um, well, if he's teaching publicly and what he's saying is so bad that he needs to be stopped on the moment, it's going to be private. You know, the elders are going to walk up and escort him off the platform. Or you know, ring the gong and get the big hook that I want to have in our church. That's a joke, but I'd love to have that, you know. Wouldn't that be cool? problem is somebody would have to decide when to ring it. Um, but, but, you know, the thing about stopping his mouth, okay, I, I don't think this is being punitive. It's not like you walk up and punch him in the nose. It's just you have to stop it because he's teaching things that are going to harm the body. And uh, in that sense, stopping his, him is public, but then you deal with him in private, I would think. Gary? We had a pretty good example, I won't use names, but we before last, someone confused Christ's act on the cross. 
was. And then, unfortunately, somebody stood up and undid what And then undid it? Yeah. Paul shaking his head. Okay. I don't know if those of you on the tape could hear that, but there was an event in the public worship where someone said something that was incorrect theologically. Another elder got up and without rebuking him, simply stated a correction. And that was the right thing to do. And then, unfortunately, somebody got up and undid the correction. But, yeah, that's, that's, that's an interesting case. I don't think that we would say that that person was a false teacher, though. You know, the, the, the kind of person that, yeah, the kind of person that's being described here in Titus chapter 1 is someone who's actually going out and doing damage through false teaching. And this is a continuous thing. Um, you know, he's described as an idle talker and a deceiver. I'm not convinced that all false teachers know that what they are teaching is false. I think very many, very many times they do. But I think sometimes they're simply poorly informed. But again, the first thing that we have to do is protect the church and then deal with that person, either correcting his false doctrine or ejecting him from the body if necessary. That's good. Correct or eject. Hmm. Okay. Now, in that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we haven't read it, but you remember there's a statement. Paul says, I together with you in my spirit direct you to hand this person over to Satan. That has something to do with church discipline. And there's a lot of discussion as to what this means. And I can't tell you for sure what it means, but I do want to go over the possibilities with you. Okay? It's also mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. What does this thing mean? What is handing somebody over to Satan? Well, the first view is that it is excommunication. Now, this is a Roman Catholic view. You're placing the sinner back into Satan's cosmos, Satan's world system, where sickness or death will lead to repentance. Now, this doesn't have to be a Roman Catholic view, okay? When the Roman Catholics talk about excommunication, they're actually saying, you're no longer part of the church, and that means you're now going to, going to hell. So, I, I, I've sort of rolled those two together, and that's probably not the right thing to do. But the idea is that you eject him from the church with the understanding that he will experience sickness or death that will lead to repentance. That's one view. The second view is that this is something that the apostles could do that nobody else can do, and we don't need to know what it means because there are no apostles around anymore. Okay? That's kind of an interesting approach to it. A third view is that this is shunning for, and then the, you know that phrase, for the destruction of the flesh appears in the text. And the idea is that this shunning leads this unbeliever to physical illness or death, which will end the sin. Obviously, death ends all sin. And end the damage done by the sinner within the church. And here the idea is, when you say hand him over to Satan, it's basically get him out of here, okay? And there's not really much concern for his restoration. It's just get him out of here so he'll stop doing danger, doing harm to the church. The other view is quite similar, except that it views, the fourth view, it views destruction of the flesh as the weakening of the sinner's sin nature through his experience of suffering so that he can learn to control his behavior. Okay? The idea is, well, if the guy is an alcoholic and he won't stop drinking, then just let him go for it, and he's going to get so beaten up in the process of doing his drinking thing that he's going to want to repent and come back. Now, alcoholism probably isn't a good excuse because it involves addiction, and that probably isn't going to work out that way, but it could be some other sin. All right? And nobody really knows which of these it is. And this first one, excommunication, is an awful lot like number three, isn't it? The only difference really is the use of the term excommunication or shunning. Um, I wrote this a while. I think the reason I did that was to indicate the difference between the Roman Catholic approach and a non-Roman Catholic approach. If we expel somebody from the church, 
we do not understand that as meaning anything about that person's ultimate destiny, right? We would never say, I've locked the door, you can't come to church, you can't fellowship with us, that means that you're now going to hell. We would never say that, would we? Exactly. Good, Tommy. We'd have to unseal him by the Holy Spirit, and of course we can't do that. Now, we haven't really said this, but let's put it on the table. When it becomes necessary in the church to discipline a professing believer who is persisting in sin and won't repent, we have no choice but to assume that this person is a believer if he says he's a believer. God really knows whether he is or he isn't, but it's never our job to make a pronouncement as to what his status is, is it? Never in scripture does it say, figure out if that guy is a believer. It just says, if that guy or that gal is doing this, then deal with him or her in this way. God knows where that person is, and, and that's his business. But if a person professes to be a believer, by making that profession, he is essentially agreeing to submit to the process of church discipline. Now, he may, he may uh, what's the word, he may object when the church actually tries, and he may run away, but I think that we have to give that person the benefit of the doubt and say, as far as we know, he or she is a believer. Any questions on what we've gone over here? Okay. All right. New topic. Sex roles in the church. This is probably the easiest church in America to teach on this topic. And I'm very grateful for that. Okay, there are two key passages on this issue. There's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now, lest we think that the statement, and I do not permit, indicates that Paul is saying, this is just the way I do it. If you look elsewhere in the book of 1 Timothy, Paul will say, and thus it is done in all the churches. And he's speaking as an apostle on the authority of God. Now, the second key passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 through 16. Now, I pulled out just a few of those verses. Paul says, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, that first verse is extraordinarily important, and I think I brought you to this verse before in discussing a very important matter having to do with how the Trinity works. Do you remember the term we've used? has to do with the hierarchy of authority in the Trinity. Anybody remember that term? Functional subordination? Does that ring a bell? Okay. The Father is over the Son, and the Son is over the Holy Spirit. That's an order of hierarchy that they arranged having to do with function. It has nothing to do with value. It has nothing to do with essence. It's just that they agreed that they were going to work that way for the purpose of order. Now, Paul takes that and he goes farther with the hierarchy, okay? There's the Father, there's the Son, he doesn't mention the Holy Spirit, and then there's man, and then there's woman. So we are part of this hierarchy of authority. And when Paul talks about the hierarchy of authority in chapter 11, he's saying that just as within the Trinity... Among the three persons of the Godhead who are all equal in essence and value and power and eternality and all those other qualities, there is a hierarchy. And if God works that way, then it's not surprising that God expects us to work that way and in fact has institute, instituted human society and in particular the structure of the church to reflect that hierarchy. Now he goes on and he says... Nor was man created for the I'm, uh, yeah. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. 
For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman nor woman independent of man. Now, Paul is saying two things in those verses. He's saying that woman's submission to man in the church should be evident. Now, one way to make it evident has to do with dress. Another way to make it evident has to do with behavior. And he says that there's something interesting at stake. He just says, because of the angels. Now, he doesn't flesh that idea out here, but he does flesh it out somewhere else. Does anybody know where the discussion of the angels and the structure and the functioning of the church is? Where is that? Anybody remember? Yeah, we talked about it. It's in Ephesians chapter 3. It's in Ephesians chapter 3, around verses 8, 9, and 10. Let's take a quick look there. It's a bit of a detour, but I think it's worth reading. My fingers are sticky today. Okay, let's look at verse 8. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the administration of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. Now here's the punchline. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now let me paraphrase that. God had an eternal purpose in creating a church in which he joined all kinds of people, people of both sexes, people of all kinds of backgrounds, and his purpose in doing that was to make his manifold wisdom evident to the watching angelic world. Do you see that? Verse 10, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking that the angels are only watching on Sunday morning. Okay? They're watching all the time. And we don't see them, but there is an unseen audience and it's not just the good angels. It's also the fallen angels. Okay? And when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels, it's because God wants the angels to look at the church and to see the hierarchy functioning according to his design because that brings him glory. Does that make sense? Okay. And this is one of the reasons why sex roles in the church are not something that are up to us to set. All right? It's God's design and he has a purpose in it. Okay. Now, I'm just going to distill some ideas from these passages. I think you're all familiar with the passages and probably everything I'm going to say is something you already know, but I think they're good to list. Okay. First idea, all official leaders of the church, elders and deacons, will be male. We've gone over that. The possible exception is if you understand that 1 Timothy indicates that there is an office of deaconess. But without that exception, all leaders in the church will be male. They must be. Why? Because of the previous passage, right? I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Now, I'm not denying the possibility of women leaders in a restricted area under the supervising leadership of the males who rule the church. Okay? All right. Second idea. This idea is divine the general idea of the sex roles, and it reflects functional subordination in the Trinity as well as the creation order and the history of the fall. 
Now, that comes from 1 Timothy chapter 2. Okay? Paul says there, I could flip back in my slide, maybe that's easier. Adam was formed first, then Eve. That means Eve was formed for Adam. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now, don't get upset here. Okay? Don't think that Paul is a woman hater or he thinks that all women are stupid. Eve happened to be the one who was deceived. Guess who, guess who is held responsible for the fall? It's Adam. You know why? I don't think Adam was deceived. Adam chose to obey his wife rather than God. And when you go through what God says in that passage, he says, because you listen to the voice of your wife, and then God lays the guilt at his feet, and here in 2 Timothy, and 1 Timothy, Paul again lays it at the feet of Paul, of, of Adam. Okay? In Romans chapter 5, Adam is said to be the one in whom the race fell. Okay? So Adam's sin actually was greater, but apparently Adam's sin, or Adam's failure, was not being deceived. It was a choice to sin. Okay? Now, we could argue all day, and I don't want to start a firestorm, over the question of whether women are more easily deceived than men. Some people would bring that in. I'm not sure that that's really in the argument. Okay, third idea. Any role in which exercising authority over men or teaching men is involved is barred to women. That's very clear. However, that leaves a whole lot, right? Women may teach and lead other women and children, but always in submission to the male leadership of the church. Okay, number five. And here we're going to come to a funny passage. I can't remember whether we've discussed this here before. The role of women is nonetheless both vital and unique. Women are qualified for and capable of certain things that men cannot do equally well. In fact, that men cannot do at all. Okay, one of those is the production of children. But take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. After stating the restrictions on women's roles in church, he says in verse 15, Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Pat, do you see that? I'm sorry, did I say 2 Timothy? 1 Timothy chapter 2. Forgive me. Do I have it on? Does it say 2 Timothy on the previous slide? I apologize. Oh, okay, on this one. I'll correct that. Um, th has anybody been baffled by this verse? You all understand exactly what it says, right? Does anybody understand exactly what it says? This is a baffling verse. Let me tell you what I think it says, okay? And the key, notice it says, Nevertheless, she will be saved if they continue in faith love and holiness with self-control. If your Bible doesn't say she and then they, it's a false translation. Some translations change it. Okay? Some translations say something like this. Nevertheless, women will be saved in childbearing if they continue. That isn't what it says. It says, nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith love and holiness with self-control. Now, the reason that's so important is I believe what Paul is saying is that women will be saved from the feeling of insignificance and not having a vital role in the church because they influence the younger generation. And if they do their job well, the younger generation will do what? Continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. This is the original version of the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. You all know that expression, right? I think that's what it's about. It has nothing to do with being saved in the sense of going to heaven or not going to heaven. You know, probably just 200 years ago, 
there are lots of people who believe that on the basis of this verse, if a woman didn't have children, she might go to hell because of that. Don't laugh. That's one of the reasons why barrenness was considered to be a curse. Isn't that horrible? But I think if you look at it in context, it means what I just said it means. Women will be saved from a feeling of being insignificant in the church since there are some things they can't do because there are certain things that only they can do and that they do extraordinarily well. And in so doing, they're preparing what? The next generation of leaders, which includes what? Men as well as women. You know, you mothers who have sons, you will influence the next generation through training your sons to rule well in the church, provided they do get saved. Yeah. Are you, do you have the big King James? Yes, I do. Well, does it does it sort of look like fifteen starts out with the word never, nevertheless, uh-huh. and it looks like that refers back to the woman in chapter in uh, verse fourteen. Yes. Who would be Eve? No. And then and then you go down to the end of fifteen, and they would be Adam and Eve. But that's I mean that's not what it is. But uh, well, well, okay, because. The whole context is a discussion of roles of men and women. It's not a discussion of what Adam and Eve did. Okay? Adam and Eve are given as an explanation, but it's talking about what men and women should do in the church. Okay? Notice he says in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to, and then there's a discussion, nevertheless she will be saved. Now he could have said, I do not permit women to do this, Nevertheless, they will be saved. But by keeping it singular, do you know what he did? In verse 15, it made it possible to distinguish between the she who is the woman and the they who are the children that she influences. And by the way, you don't have to have kids to influence kids. There are lots of women who influence kids who are not their own and who inf- women who have never had children. You know, Their presence in the church, their ministry in the church... All kinds of things that they do. Okay? So Question. In verse 15, you're saying, I know I've got your name in it, um, anyway, um, but women shall be preserved, and you're saying that women should be sheep. Yes. The, the word women doesn't appear there. Now, what, what the NASB did there and what the NIV did there is they attempted to give what they understand to be the meaning of the passage. But in so doing, they actually obscured what it says, and I think they obscured the meaning. Okay? There are a few other theories of what this verse means, um, and I can't quote them off the top of my head, but this one is by far, I think, the most sensible one. It makes sense of the context. Um, it makes sense of the pronouns, you know, the she and the they, and I think it is the correct view. Pat? <coughs> Yeah. Right. Right. One of the views is that it's speaking of the salvation of women through the birth of Christ. But what the heck does that have to do with the context? Not a blessed thing. Yeah. It's it's a common view. See, the problem is you got the word saved through childbearing. And you say, well, how could childbearing save anybody? But the problem there is that we make the knee-jerk reaction that every time we see the word saved, we think it means being saved from eternal hell. But the word saved is used all different kinds of ways in Scripture. You know, just like, you know, I'm going to save that plastic egg crate because I can put ping-pong balls in it. You know, I'm not talking about keeping it from going to hell. Um... So I think, you know, that's one of the views, but it doesn't make any sense to me at all. From from a sense of of unimportance in the church. It simply says saved. Okay. The question is saved from what? And and. Off the top of my head, if you can tell me how bearing a child could cause any woman to be saved, I'm ready to listen, but obviously you can't. You know. So 
you know, the, the word saved is one of those words where you got to look at the context and ask, be saved from what? And I think in the context, it's be saved from the feeling like, well, I can't do anything in the church because I'm not a man. Well, the fact of the matter is, if you're not a man, you still got three quarters of the church to minister to, right? The women and all the kids. So, you know, there, there's still a lot there. Man, this is going slowly. Um, all right. Yeah, I thought we were going to zip through this stuff. Okay, chapter uh, six reason. Andrew? Okay, you're telling us, thanks. Okay, a balanced view recognizes that restrictions on women's ministry are not as wide as is commonly thought. That's the point I just made. Okay? And the last thing, and this I ran into in the Philippines because I taught in a seminary that had a large number of women professors in it. I didn't know that before I went, but, um, you know, I would teach this and the students would say to me, how can you teach in this seminary when there's so many women teaching? And I would say, well, first of all, I don't run the seminary. I'm here to help, not to run, okay? And secondly, I said, I think most of these women would be doing something else if the men would get off their dead rear ends and do what they're supposed to be doing. So we, we need to be careful not to use what Paul says in Scripture to go out and attack women in ministry. I think what we should be doing is encouraging men to fulfill the roles that they should be fulfilling. And generally, not always, I think that women will be happy to step out of those roles into a role that is suited for them. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's. And it looks like that they have they have just backed off of that. Well, we we for those listening to the tape in churches where women take a dominant role, sometimes the men will sit back and do nothing. Now that that can either that can either be a result or a cause. But we live in a time in our culture when men are being beaten up and demonized and marginalized and women are being exalted and pushed into roles that they were not designed for and are not qualified for, and I'm not ashamed to say that. And the churches are reflecting the sickness of our society. And that's very unfortunate. Okay. Let's go on for five more minutes. Maybe we can do this fast. Okay, the ordinances of the church. Okay, the ordinances of the church are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Some churches call them sacraments. I personally don't like the word sacrament because it suggests that they're sacred or they impart grace in some way. Most Protestants don't use that term. Okay, there are the two ordinances. The nature of both of these is disputed. Now let's go over this very quickly. Views on baptism. One view on baptism is that it's a means of saving grace. This is called baptismal regeneration. The idea is that unless you're baptized, you're not saved. Those who hold to this view will often go to Acts chapter 2, verse 38 to support the view, but it's actually quite easy to uh, defeat this view. You know, the thief on the cross turned to Christ and said, I believe in you, and Jesus said, you'll be with me today in paradise, and he was not baptized. Um, a second view of baptism is that it is a sign and seal of the covenant. This is commonly a reform view. We won't go through this in any detail, but those who hold this view generally assume that the church is the new Israel, and they view baptism in the church as parallel to circumcision in Israel. And they're wrong on both accounts. Okay, We could talk about that some other time, but we won't tonight. People who hold this view generally baptize infants. And this is generally a holdover from Roman Catholic theology and practice. That's supposed to be practice. Um, one of the big problems with baptizing infants is that there's sort of this idea that people won't quite articulate, which is if my baby dies, I know he goes to heaven now. But what if the baby happens to grow up and never comes to faith? 
Well, then when did he stop being saved? It just doesn't make any sense. Okay? All right. The third view of baptism is that it's a sim symbol or a testimony to salvation. This is the correct view. Um, baptism expresses identification with the message like those who came to John the Baptist to be baptized and it expresses identification with Christ. Romans chapter 6 says you have been baptized into his death. Baptism expresses solidarity with other believers. In Acts chapter 2 verse 38 when the people who have just been convicted of the sin of crucifying Christ say what should we do? Peter says repent and be baptized. Now he wasn't saying until you get baptized you won't be saved. He was saying be baptized and identify with the rest of this group of believers so that people around you who knew that you once condemned Christ now have come to realize that he is who he said he was. It was a matter of identi identification with the rest of the body that already existed. Now, baptism is a symbol, but not a means of spiritual cleansing. And I think this one is obvious. It doesn't actually accomplish anything. When you go down into the water and you come back up, are you spiritually any different? No. Except that now you have, on your record, one more act of obedience to Christ. Okay? And I believe that baptism is best expressed by immersion. Notice I didn't say only. Okay? I do believe that immersion is the best way to baptize, but I'm not going to get in a fist fight with somebody who wants to sprinkle or dip, or, or sprinkle or splash or whatever it is they use. Okay. Let's, Andrew, question? Okay, let's talk about the Lord's Supper. We can go through this one really quickly. And we'll be close to the end. Okay. There are several views on the Lord's Supper. It is certainly a remembrance of Christ for believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 and 25. It's a proclamation of his sacrificial death. Same chapter. In doing this, what does it say? You proclaim the death of Christ. And how does it finish? Until he comes. And that leads to the third thing. It's a reminder that he will return. On the night that the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper, he said, I will not drink this cup with you. I will not drink this cup until I drink it anew with you in my kingdom. What he was saying is, I'm coming back. Okay, so it's, it anticipates his return and is a reminder. And the whole section on 1 Corinthians chapter 11 despite the fact that there were abuses going on in that communal meal, the Lord's Supper was a context for fellowship among believers, wasn't it? It was a great opportunity to get together and to be reminded we are one body, we belong under our head, um, and it's something very special in that way. Now here's an interesting question. Who may participate in the Lord's Supper? Well, I would argue that only believers should. Now, I can't find anything in Scripture that says unbelievers can't, but it's obviously meaningless if an unbeliever does it, right? And I don't think any of you would argue with that. I don't think that that's what that that was what that's about. You're talking about First Corinthians chapter 11. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think. I don't think that has anything to do with unbelievers. I actually think the discussion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in verses 27 down to 29, by the way, the word is judgment, not damnation. Um, I think that that is talking, and you'll be surprised at this, I don't think it's talking about taking the Lord's Supper without examining your heart and confessing sin. I think in context, it's talking about believers behaving badly at the communal meal of the church. Tommy's shaking his head. Well, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not a fan of young children taking the Lord's table either. Um, and, and this is a judgment call that various churches should make. You know, many churches would say, 
you shouldn't participate until you've been baptized, and you're generally not going to be baptized until you have some comprehension of what it means to be saved. Um, but, but it's a toughie. Dave, you and I could talk about what that passage is about during the break. It's an interesting one. Um, the second thing, I don't think believers who are under discipline should partake of the table. Um, and there I've just put in the two passages on shunning in the church. If shunning means non-participation in the fellowship, they obviously can't participate in the Lord's table, right? Because that's part of the fellowship. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 does call for examining oneself. Again, the question there is, however, whether it's talking about a private examination for general sin or whether in context that's talking about bad behavior at the potluck meal of the church, which also happened to be the place where they would participate in the Lord's Supper. Okay, And if you want some homework, go home and read that whole chapter and see if you don't see what I'm talking about. Most of us have only read that short little section and have never read it in context. And I think you'll find that it's talking about actually bad behavior towards other believers in the potluck meal of the church, which happened to also be where they observed the Lord's table. Okay? So go home and do that. Um, we started late, so let's go through this last slide and we'll have to finish up. I've got about three or four next time. Okay? Views on the Lord's Supper. What is going on with the bread and the wine? What does all this mean? There are basically four views. The first view is called transubstantiation. This is the Roman Catholic view. According to that view, the elements, the bread and the wine, are actually transformed into the body and blood of Christ as the priest prays. I saw some movie recently where there was some leftover bread and it got taken out in the backyard and somehow the dog ate it and the kid was watching and said, the dog just ate Christ. And he was serious because he believed in transubstantiation. Now, in this view, the Lord's table is a real sacrifice that has saving merit. Okay, these two things go together. Okay? Roman Catholics believe that every time there is a Mass, Christ is, Christ is crucified again. And they believe in that crucifixion, more sins are paid for. You're looking at me strangely, Gene. Well, then you know this, right? Okay. Um, the mass, the mass is not just a memorial in the Roman Catholic Church, and this is one reason why I encourage you, if you ever visit a Roman Catholic Church with a friend, do not partake of the Lord's table there. So, David, what do what they think the apostles ate and drank? What do you mean? Well, that's got to refer back to the. I mean, what? If you go back to the apostles when they, you know, oh, on, on the you mean you mean on the night of the first, right? Uh, they would probably say that Jesus was instituting it, but from then on, this thing happened. Yeah, no, that, that's an interesting question. I didn't understand what you were saying there, Gary. Um, okay, now the second view is consubstantiation. This was Luther's view. Luther argued that there was a real presence of Christ in the elements, although they don't change. Don't ask me what this means. I have no idea. Okay? He argued that grace was imparted in the taking of the elements. Now, he didn't say that saving grace was imparted, but he said that grace was imparted, meaning when you eat that thing, there is a spiritual result. Okay? Now, in a few minutes, I'll tell you what I think is going on in that view. Now, the next view, and you're going to look at this and say this says the same as consubstantiation. The next view was Calvin's view. Calvin differed with Luther, and there was a lot of fighting over this. He said there was a real spiritual presence of Christ in the elements. Luther said there was a real presence of Christ in the elements. They both said the elements didn't change. What's the difference between those two views? Don't ask me. Okay? I can't make any sense of it. Calvin also believed that grace was imparted in the taking of the elements. So that when you eat that thing, that physical consumption has an effect on your spirit. 
Okay? The last view is the memorial view, which is generally held by most Protestants. In the memorial view, we would understand that there's no presence of Christ in the elements. They are a memorial and no more. No grace is imparted by partaking. Okay? Now you can see these two are kind of in the middle. Consubstantiation and Calvin's view are in the middle between transubstantiation and the memorial view. I think it's perfectly obvious that the weight of the biblical evidence supports the memorial view. Now, transubstantiation is associated with the heresy of the Roman Catholic Mass. I'm not afraid to say that. The Mass is a heresy. Okay? Christ was crucified once for the sins of many. Stated very clearly in the book of Hebrews. The idea that every time the Mass is carried on, that Christ is re-crucified and that new sins are paid for is heresy. Okay? Now, the two middle views really don't seem to have any biblical support, and I think what was going on was that Luther and Calvin were moving in the right direction, but they just couldn't quite leave what they were used to. Okay? So I don't really want to beat up on them, but I would say this, after 500 years, you would think that the Lutheran church would have figured out this doesn't make sense. Um, I do think the, the memorial view is the correct view. It's really very difficult to defend the other views unless you take a woodenly literal view of certain statements of Christ that clearly weren't meant to be taken in a woodenly literal sense. Okay? Belen? Oh no, there there are there are some re the Lutherans hold the consubstantiation, uh -huh. Roman Catholic hold to transubstantiation. And there are some reformed churches that hold to Calvin's view, which is somewhere between consubstantiation and the memorial view. Okay? There are probably some Presbyterian churches that hold to that. Um, I would guess that the um, what's the the Anglican Church probably holds either to consubstantiation or to Calvin's view. I'm just guessing, but I suspect that that is true. Um, but I think the vast majority of Protestants today hold to the memorial view. Um, the idea that that spiritual grace is imparted through the partaking of these things it is very difficult to defend biblically. And Christ calls it a memorial and a declaration. He never says that you will be changed by drinking that cup and eating that wafer. Okay? Uh, Episcopal is pretty much Anglican. I, I, I don't know for sure, but I'll bet you I'll bet you they're down here in Calvin's view. I, I could be wrong. Are they? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Gary says they are. All right. Let's take a break until 8 o'clock.